Hey Rebel Rouser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7. We're at episode number 1591 right now and today, it being Sunday, we're going to have another Sunday conversation and on today's episode I'm talking with Mark O'Connell who is the author of a loving ode to a VHS galaxy not so far, far away called Watching Skies, Star Wars, Spielberg and Us and here's the Official bio for Mark. Mark O'Connell is an award-winning writer and author. As a comedy writer, he has written for a wide range of actors, performers, titles, and media. As a warm-witted pop culture pundit, he has written and guested for Variety, Sky Movies, The Times, The Guardian, Out Magazine, Channel 4, 5, Yahoo Movies, and across BBC Radio and Television. He was one of the official storytellers of London 2012, owns one-tenth of a BAFTA, <laughs> once got praised by the Coen brothers, and now travel rights. He is also the author of Catching Bullets, Memoirs of a Bond Fan. And the conversation I had actually I had with him about a week or so ago and just had to hang on to it because we're doing this whole Sunday conversation thing. It's unfortunate in that sense because I really enjoyed the heck out of the conversation and I've been wanting to share this with you from the moment I had the conversation and yet, and yet, you know, scheduling stuff and all that. But I talked to Mark about a couple of incidents that he relates in the book and I also threw the questions at him that I had thrown at other authors and journalists who wrote Star Wars related material at different Star Wars celebration events. So those are interspersed with my questions for him about some of the experiences he relates in the book. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Mark O'Connell, the author of Watching Skies, which was a very enjoyable memoir. And because you're not going to hear it at the end of the show, I'll just say it right now. Thank you so much for joining me and Mark for this episode. And I hope you'll continue to subscribe to the show. Hope you'll consider supporting the efforts of myself because it's me to put the show on by joining me at patreon.com slash SW7X7. And of course, may the force be with you wherever in the world you may be. Mark O'Connell, thank you so much for joining me on Star Wars 7x7. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm glad we finally be able to sort this. There's been a few issues and scheduling issues, but I'm here. I'm here. I'm good. I'm very excited for it. And I've had a chance to read Watching Skies, and it's a wonderful book. It's a beautiful reminiscence, and I'm very grateful that your publisher sent along a copy. It was really awesome of them to do that, too. No, you're most welcome. We always we were very keen, or I was very keen particularly, to get the good Star Wars minds on board and just to, to reach out to guys like yourself. So I'm really glad that we're talking and that you've you've done, you've found the book, you've you've encountered it. <laughs> As it were, Close Encounters, of course, being yeah. a very prominent part of the book. But I am going to stick mostly with Star Wars, and I'm going to do something a little bit different um, with you, but it's only different in terms of what I've you know done with interviews like this on the podcast. But I have done this at Star Wars Celebration, which, of course, is the big, you know, convention that happens for Star Wars fans. And for the last three sessions of it, I've asked a single question and I've asked it of authors and journalists and other people connected with Star Wars, employees of Lucasfilm and so forth. And so you being both an author and a journalist in this regard, it seems like it would be appropriate to do this to you as well. Yes, so, um, the first question I'm going to ask you is just an open-ended one, and you can answer it however you like, and it is simply this. Why Star Wars? Oh, my God. That's, that's a big, big one. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, why not? First of all, I'm of that generation. I was born in 75 when uh, Jaws was still in the box office, 
And so I was a little too young to sort of be in those Grauman's Chinese theatre uh, cues, sadly. But uh, yeah, I why Star Wars? It just was everywhere in my childhood. It was part of the fabric of my culture, my toys, my the media that would come into my life. So it, it was just there. It was there as much as we had to eat dinner or have breakfast. <laughs> and you do talk about the toys significantly in Watching Skies, which is fun. And, uh, you know, as some of the book jacket comments say, you know, they're surprised that, oh, there are other people who had these very similar experiences and they you know, kind of went through their lives thinking, oh, you know, it was sort of, you know, my own experience. I thought I was alone in my head with this stuff. But it turns out I'm one of those folks as well. You and I had very similar experiences, it seems, except there's one interesting sort of, you know, mirror image situation where for me, I didn't actually get access to the toys until after I'd seen the original Star Wars. Whereas you, as you detail in the book, your experience with the toys actually happened before you were able to see yeah. Star Wars for the first time. So yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk about how the toys actually had an effect on you knowing that you, I mean, knowing as we do that you never actually saw Star Wars before you were immersed in the toys. Like how did that become such a significant part of your childhood experience in general and also um, your experience of Star Wars? Mm, mm. Well, I first saw Star Wars, uh, well, I first saw bits of it visually October 82 when it had its first TV premiere on British television in uh, October 82. Um, but this was a time we didn't have VCRs. They were just slowly coming into the market. We had one cinema, one screen in my particular town where I grew up. And we those films didn't, we, they were they were arm's length all the time. So what the toys did was the toys, I mean, it was a great marketing ruse and a, a great marketing idea on the part of George Lucas to have these toys. Yes, they created revenue and, you know, and created big bucks. I get that. But he was bringing the folklore of Star Wars into our bedrooms, into our birthdays, into our Christmases. And also into our school, you know, the, the, the yard at school. And, and we would, it was almost like a currency of what figures have you got? Oh, you've got that figure. Well, you can join our team. So it became <laughs> like a sort of, um, yeah, like I, like I say, like a currency. Um, so, I, yes, I found the toys way before the films. And, at, and yes, you were, I was aware that who Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and Princess Leia were. I, I was aware that they were the... The, the epitome of good and evil. Um, but then it, I found it curious watching the films to learn uh, who, who Fallon was or who uh, Yakface was or who some of the Atat uh, uh, generals and commandants were. So, yeah, it was a great taster. It was like a sort of hors d'oeuvre to Star Wars <laughs> to have those figures. And it, and it, you know, they weren't inexpensive. They were findable. It was easier to find a Star Wars figure in sort of 82, 83, in mm -hmm. Britain at least, than it was to see the movies. So that's that's what happened. Yeah, that's right. Because at that time, I believe you said it was only on TV. And then even then it was only available via pay TV early on and then finally mm. made it to the actual television stations of which there were very few at the time, which it, it's so three, three TV stations. Mm -hmm. uh, well, actually, no, by the time of 82, we had four. Yeah, like four channels. So we were just immersed in four channels. And they'd all turn off about midnight as well. Um, so, yeah, it was a, we were sort of filmically, um, it was a barren time. It was a dark time, as, yes. as, uh, as we would say. That <laughs> matches up with mine as well. It was, I think, seven channels when I was growing up. And uh, they would sign off in the middle of the night and boot up in the morning with a mm. montage of 
of very Americana-esque scenery and Ray Charles's America the Beautiful played over it. And mm -hmm. I, I mentioned that because actually Americana comes up as part of your, um, your analysis of that time period of the movies. And I do want to talk about that time period, but you've led me into a second question that I've asked at Celebration that I want to drop on you, which is, you know, you've shared a lot of Star Wars related memories in the book, but what would you say is your favorite Star Wars memory? Uh, I, my favorite Star Wars memory is actually my worst Star Wars memory as oh, well. No. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. In May 1983, my, my mum and stepdad took me. I'm an only child, so the three of us went to Crete, one of the Greek islands, mm -hmm. on a package tour and stayed in one of those sort of concrete hotels that, you know, looks like something from Thunderbirds. Uh, and <laughs> I, being an only child, I took all my Star Wars figures with me. And at that time, I had 12. I, I called them the Dirty Dozen or the, the founding fathers of my Star Wars <laughs> plastic childhood. And um, they came and I took them to, like, Knossos, which is like, it's weird though, actually, when I look back and the book brings this up, that I was taking my Star Wars figures to some of the the origin sites, you know, the history sites of where Lucas was sometimes inspired, like the Minotaur and all of that. I was taking my Bespin Luke Skywalker up and down the corridors of Knossos, where the Minotaur story took place. But anyway, so I had them there and then we flew home and our flight was diverted to a different airport and we got in at two or three in the morning. Mm. We had to get like an, a, a cab that we couldn't trace. And I left my whole bag satchel full of toys and clothes in the back of a cab and we could never get them back again. And I was desolate. To this day, I still every, every time I go near an airport, I'm just thinking, should I just check the lost property department? They, they could have just, it might be the thing. It could be like in a glass cabinet of please claim me sort of for 35 very dusty years. So losing those Star Wars figures, it was, it was, I wouldn't say it's the best memory, but it is one of the strongest memories. And it, but it also, it told me, it reinforced how important that those films were to me because I was seriously depressed and desolate. But my mum, the following Saturday when we went into town and went to the department stores, my mum gave me more uh, allowance or pocket money and I managed to start to replace those figures. I never replaced them all. As the book says, There's the Bespin mm -hmm. Princess Leia is like, I never got her again, but I got, I got Luke, Bespin Luke, which that was one of the, uh, the ones I had to replace. So yeah, <laughs> my best memory was also one of my worst ones. Oh my goodness. And the, the town that you went to for this was called Guildford, is that correct? Yeah, Guildford, yes. Now, aren't you from somewhere like, is there a similar name? Did I see that? You did see that. Bizarrely, okay. it's Guildford, G-I-L-F-O-R-D. And oh. there was an old older spelling of the town, I guess, where a U was inserted in there as well but not ah. a second D. So yes, I saw that in the book and thought, oh my gosh, here's another very fascinating parallel. It's so yeah, strange. Yeah, yeah, it's a small world, a small galaxy. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so I'm going to take you back to the, the questions of the movies themselves. And you hmm. sort of define a watching skies era of movies and beginning with Jaws in 1975 and ending or sunsetting, if you will, as you put it in the book, hmm. with Gremlins and Ghostbusters in 1984. And I think it's pretty easy for, I don't know why it is that, like, you know, upon reading that, my natural reaction is to utterly and completely agree with you at, with Jaws as the start point of it and thinking to myself, well, of course, that's, that is just established fact, like that has to be. And I'm not saying that to then turn around and say, I utterly disagree with you on Gremlins and Ghostbusters. Instead, I'm actually curious to know why it is that you 
define the end of it there. I mean, <laughs> although I looked at what came out in 1985 and what some of the big movies were, and it <laughs> was Beverly Hills Cop and Witness, which was the big Harrison Ford, Peter Weir vehicle. That, and that big, that big toy film, Witness. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And Back to the Future, which was, of course, very successful and also ties into the whole franchise notion that you mentioned as part of the success of that particular Watching Skies era and Cocoon. But then also, from a sequel perspective, it also had Friday the 13th, the reboot, um, Police Academy 2, Rambo 2, European Vacation. So all these sequels. So it's almost as if Hollywood proper not the you know the new hollywood that was being you know created very creatively up in northern california but regular hollywood realized oh this whole sequel business is a thing and we Mm. could get in on the sequel business Mm. and so it seems like 1985 is rather littered with the detritus of (laughs) sequels that were based on you know properties that didn't necessarily deserve sequels but um why you know enough of me why did you think that 1984 is kind of the end line for this era? Well, I couldn't put everything in. So as a writer, you've got to like try and have some bookends to the timeline. And I've also I've written a book about being a, a Bond fan as well. So I, I didn't want the, the time streams or you know the streams to cross too much. And they didn't have to anyway. So when I say that Jaws, Jaws is obviously the first poster boy of that era of Spielberg, Lucas, Donner, it wasn't the first beat or note in that movement because there was films like Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, The Godfather, American Graffiti. They they also you know dropped the DNA and, and, and started to create a very different era of high concept, great cinema. Um, so but I do start with Jaws and you're right, although the book ends on it, which I, I tried to do sort of perversely. Um, but to, to sort of look at the end point... Um, it was really hard for me to leave out Back to the Future and the Goonies. Mm-hmm. I must admit, I, the Goonies I, also, I, yes. I had a great chapter on the Goonies, you know, the, just watching it. Because when I looked at all these films again, I would sit with a glass of wine and a pen and paper and just look at them on a Saturday or a Friday night like they were designed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really made great notes on the Goonies. I was really keen on that because um, the whole film, The Goonies, just as a sideline, The Goonies is about two mothers who can't control their kids. Um, <laughs> and I in that era of, of strong dominant mothers in Spielberg and uh, Lucasfilm slightly to a degree. Um, so yeah, the book is called Watching Skies, Star Wars, Spielberg and Us and Star Wars ended in 1983. They they didn't make any more Star Wars films. I hope they haven't. Don't don't spoil it for me. <laughs> uh, no, no, they, so that ended and then there was that slightly fallow period or quiet period. Um, and then I think American sci-fi, mainstream sci-fi movies started to change a bit so whereas we had the fantasy and innocence of et and close encounters and and empire and jedi suddenly we had like short circuit daryl um (laughs) yeah daryl don't knock daryl i'm waiting for the daryl remake Mm -hmm. come on netflix do the (laughs) daryl show um but but these films and Space Camp as well, they started to become really Earth-based. So Space Camp is about NASA. All right, it's still fantasy, but it, it, it wasn't kids coming from a different world or flying to a different world. And the same is Short Circuit and Daryl. There was a sort of militaristic uh, reality to it. So that sort of sense of wonder had shifted and moved. So that's why I thought, that's a, that's a good period to end. And if I do a sequel to Watching Skies, I'll certainly take that 
that era forwards and go with that particular era. And it also puts me in mind, actually, of The Last Starfighter or Explorers, which were also, I mean, at least those movies came after as well, if I'm not mistaken. And they actually, you know, traversed space to some degree. And yet they still have the feel of being more studio productions rather than necessarily being, I mean, obviously, you know, E.T. ultimately ends up being a studio production in its way, but it still feels like it has its own rebellious heart. Yes. Yeah, very much. So. Yeah, very much so. But then by the time of 84, I mean, I do look at Temple of Doom. I have to because I love the film. But, mm -hmm. you know, the color purple was maybe not going to sit so well in the book or um, uh, uh, Empire of the Sun. You know, we didn't go as 10 year old kids with our with our Christian Bale figurines to Empire of the Sun. So that, yeah, that's a different era. And times, you know, shifted and evolved. Mm -hmm. Although I'll tell you, my uh, single mother actually took me to see... Harrison Ford in the Mosquito Coast, which was, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which was, you know, hey, it's on Solo, and uh, yeah, that didn't work out so much, but. She had coupons, she had coupons that week, I reckon, there was a coupon thing going on there, it's not a bad <laughs> film, it's just so dreary, that film, it's just so drudgy, but anyway. But, I mean, to that point, though, just also ending in 84, you know, you look at Spielberg, who was one of the big progenitors of this kind of cinema, and you mentioned The Color Purple being his next movie after, um, I think it was directly after E.T., maybe? Uh, no, Temple uh, of Doom. No. Temple of uh, Doom, that's right, after Temple of Doom, excuse me. And plus, then... Plus all the producing bits, though. He did, you know, he launched Back to the Future and, and the whole Amblin thing took off. So he went, he, mm -hmm. perhaps, perhaps those films carried on in his pr producer roles than perhaps his directed ones, maybe. That's a different book, perhaps. Yeah, because it's then, as you said, Empire of the Sun, and then Always, which is a romantic comedy, you know, and huh. also World War II bent as well. So it's almost as if, you know, he, you know, as you said, he went on and produced things in that huh. vein, but he kind of left the scene in his own way as well. And so huh. did Lucas, for that matter, because yeah. Star yeah. Wars obviously being over and, you know, other progenitors as well. So, yeah, it's... it. I think you're absolutely right about 84 being, you know, a great place at which to end that watching skies era as you define it. It's just, it's, you know, fascinating to actually look back and consider it because, you know, we've, we're so immersed just in our daily lives in general and not necessarily thinking about the history of this stuff, but you actually do a fantastic job in the book, if I may say so, not only personalizing the experience, but also looking at the macro level of what was going on not only in movie culture at the time, but also in television culture as well, and also in British culture too, and politics and so forth, which, you know, for an American audience is slightly less accessible, but um, but it was still familiar enough, like, yeah, Princess Diana and Minor Strikes and Margaret Thatcher, like, it's still, you know, like, it, it comes back to you when you get it. Yeah, yeah, it's all precedent stuff. I think, actually, another reason why I ended on 84, 85, although I do look at Force Awakens... And th those movies, what they then became, because mm -hmm. uh, I, I think you have to, you can't ignore that. But one reason why I sort of ended on 84, 85, I feel that that's when the 80s started to kick in with movies. Mm. So the Goonies, you have property, you have the, the kids, they're worrying about property developers and money and paying bills. And, and yes, you get Wall Street and dark, you know, darker, more yuppie cinema. Um but, you know, 80, like you say, 82, E.T., that was still very much a set. You know, that film was probably realized in the late 70s. There's a 70s sort of, I want to say innocence. There's probably better words, but a, a, a sort of folk 
humanity to those films. But by the mid 80s, the, that the decade started to seep into the films. Like I say, the military side of, of Short Circuit or Daryl, uh, even Last Starfighter slightly does that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned also in the book, you talked about how, you know, the, you know, the strong female figures and also the, the broken homes that um, Spielberg often depicted. And, you know, it's it's fascinating that that is, you know, culturally what was being brought to the fore in the late 70s and early 80s and dealing with the aftermath of the Vietnam War and stuff. But the people who are telling these stories, in particular Spielberg and Lucas, that you know we spend a lot of time on in the book, they're children of the 40s. They're just coming out of you know the end of World War II and growing up in that post-World War II Korean War, Cold War era. And yet they were still able to access the, you know, the zeitgeist of those particular times. You know, they weren't giving us movies that were talking about, you know, their, you know, their childhood so much. I mean, I think Spielberg kind of went back to that with things like Empire of the Sun and Always and obviously Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan and a number of other ones he's done later in life. But certainly when he was in that younger, more rebellious phase, he was really able to look at what the world was like around him and integrate that as well as his own experience. I think you captured that very well. Yeah, because thank you, thank you. Because I always think Jaws and Close Encounters are a real reaction to that Nixon era. You know, I wasn't there. I only see what, you know, I only see the bullet points that we all pick up on in hindsight. Uh, and I always think that Close Encounters and, and Star Wars, they're just reactions to perhaps getting over the worst times. So maybe, you know, in America in five years, suddenly cinema might have a, a second childhood at the moment it has to be slightly reactionary to all the different dark shadows looming back and forth um but yeah I, I mean Spielberg and Lucas they like you say they were war kids they were 40s kids and they were immersed in 40s and you know in war movies but they were immersed in those war movies that had pace and adventure to them so you know the dog fights of all those movies are obviously uh, are littered throughout Star Wars um yeah. particularly so um <laughs> And they, they brought that a real simplicity to what they did. You know, they didn't over, whereas you know, Spielberg and Lucas were pushing all the technology and the sound systems and, and Pixar and all that computer software and, and uh, ILM technology, they were making really, I want to use a better word, but folksy stories with a great humanity to them. Uh, and perhaps that's what maybe they came out of the war era you know, being kids in that time of just realizing what the crux of a film is and it's about the people it's not about the effects and the bells and the whistles although the bells and whistles certainly do capture the imagination in their way yeah i guess oh, that's yeah. The, they, um... they use the best bells and whistles admittedly yes. <laughs> it's the uh, the spoonful of sugar that mary poppins like to give us i guess yeah absolutely yeah um, so I know we have only a short period of time together, unfortunately, but I do have one other question for you, which is, um, the last one that I want to ask you f that I've asked other authors and journalists that are operating in the Star Wars galaxy. And that is what excites you the most about Star Wars today? Uh, the fact that it's a cinematic beast. Again. <laughs> uh, that, that. Rancor franchise has been released, you know, is out there. Um, that the films are talked about, that they, that to use that currency word, they, there's a currency, you know, hashtag Star Wars is is everywhere. Uh, I I think the new era of movies has been mostly successful. I, I 
I hate and love in equal measure that we have a Star Wars film nearly every year. It, <laughs> it feels wrong. Christmas shouldn't be so often, but I quite like it because who doesn't want more Christmas? Right. Um, so I, I, I'm happy. I really like where the films are going, and I like that they've gone back to the stories and the world that it started at. You know, that sort of analog late 70s, early 80s world of, of plastic rubber creatures tapping away at roadkill. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we've perhaps moved away from those trade federation union talks. And I'm not a prequels basher by any stretch. And I think those films will have a greater resonance as time goes on. That You know, I think Phantom Menace is, is actually fits a lot more acutely into the other films around it now that those films weren't there in 99 so just i'm actually really optimistic and i love being a star wars fan i I love that we can have these movies still i have to say that you know the whole thing about getting a movie a year that was initially i think one of the things that i you know was excited about and also feared the most when they initially announced that this was going to happen because Sometimes I feel like the scarcity of Star Wars was one of the things that really cemented its place in our hearts and our souls. And I think you probably had a very similar experience having read the book because of how difficult it was back in you know our childhoods to actually see Star Wars on anything resembling a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I mean, every three years, you know, in America and everywhere else, that was yeah, imagine having Christmas every three years when you're a, ten, <laughs> you're a ten-year-old kid. It seems to come round every four months when you when you hit thirty and forty. But um, yeah, I I think the frequency is an issue. I, I think it came perhaps to the worst point when we just come off Last Jedi, and then Solo came out not long after we all probably all got Last Jedi, you know, for home. And and suddenly it's like uh, I don't even know which Star Wars film to watch this weekend because there's like <laughs> Solo in the theatres and Last Jedi I've got on Blu-ray. Um, it's an embarrassment of riches. I suppose we've got to look at it as a positive thing. Mm-hmm. I reckon perhaps Solo has taught a few lessons along the way. Um, I don't think I, I think Solo's a fine film. It's got problems, but then so so did Return of the Jedi. So did Close Encounters. So you can't. We we mustn't be too angry and too controlling over you know what is still art. They're still movies. And I think that's that's something I've loved about the new. The, 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 the more recent episodes, they've been, they've been pieces of cinema before they've been franchise, if that makes sense. So, you know, there's beautiful shots. I was really surprised by what J.J. Abrams did in Force Awakens. There's a real beautiful sort of poetry to particularly those early race scenes and they were utterly cinematic. You know, it wasn't just nods to extended universes and, and spin-off novels. It was actually just making a piece of cinema. And that's why I'm... That's why I think particularly the the new trilogy has achieved very well so far. I think I saw for the first time anyone ever suggesting that The Force Awakens could have benefited from more CGI, even a tad more, as you suggested That was me, yeah, yeah. I yeah. Did say, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, CGI is getting better because we don't notice it. There's CGI in anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when you notice it. But then if you noticed any effects, then they've perhaps... Missed their target. Um, I, no, I, re- I love the analog effect of Force Awakens. I say it in the book, it feels like a CBS Fox video Star Wars movie that's come out in 1985 that we didn't know about. You know, that it was kept, <laughs> kept on. Um, and I would be, I'm intrigued to see what they do with the third one. Uh, and then maybe we're going to have more trilogies. I imagine we will. 
I imagine we will too. And hopefully uh, you will write more wonderful books about that. And then we can have you back on the show again as well. Oh. Not that I wouldn't have you back regardless of the book, but still. Yeah. You know, right. it's always Let's... nice to have another, you know, wonderful publication to talk about with you. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. And I appreciate the, yeah, the time that you've uh, given to me and to have a good chat today. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. So for our listeners and viewers, um, where can they best connect with you on you know, online, on social media? Where yep. would you like our, uh, our, vis- our listeners and viewers to go from here? Yeah, well, I've got a website, which is markoconnellco.uk. I'm on Twitter, Mark, at Mark O'Connell, but the O is a zero. And I'm on Facebook, Watching Skies is on Facebook. There's a good little page we've got going, uh, trying to sort of harvest people's memories and thoughts and get the, the chat going there. So, yeah, Facebook, Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. Yeah, so I'm, I'm out there. Just put in hashtag Watching Skies and you'll probably find me holding up some cantina bar beer somewhere in, in some <laughs> Facebook corridor. Wonderful. Mark O'Connell, author of Watching Skies, Star Wars, Spielberg, and Us. Thank you so much again for joining me on Star Wars 7x7. This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox, and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2018, Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.